Amen. So we are in a brand new series. I'm calling it Peace on Earth. Because if you are anything like me, you know the disconnect between the promise of Christmas and the reality of everyday life. I'm going to start right there. I'm going to put it up on the screen. Luke chapter 2. You've heard Linus say it every single year uh, from a stage where, you know, on the cartoon. But let's read it and just see what it says. It says, And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And then suddenly it says, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, and you guys know this, you probably have it memorized by now, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. The promise is peace. The promise is peace on earth. Now, our problem is that we don't experience peace on earth. And so we look for all kinds of ways to get around that. Oh, well, it's peace on earth to those on whom his favor rests. So only some people get to experience God's peace, right? That's, that's one of the ways that we sort of uh, skirt the, the disconnect that we experience. But if you're anything like me, you're probably in a place where you are aware of the total lack of peace in our world. You're aware of the incredible divisions among people, the, the warlike arguments and debates that Christians have with other Christians and non-Christians have with Christians and non-Christians have with other Christians and Republicans have with Democrats and Americans have with Canadians and Afghanistanians. Afghanis and all the other people in the world. It's like there's so many divisions that have perpetuated poverty, that have prolonged the pandemic, that have done all sorts of injustice in this world. We've experienced it over the last couple of years in more vivid fashion than perhaps any other time in our lives. And the question remains, but I thought there was supposed to be peace on earth. Now, what's especially interesting about the passage that we just read is that peace, I called it a promise, but that's wrong. It wasn't a promise. When the angels say peace on earth, they're not saying, and I promise you that one of these days, peace will come on earth. And the reason I can say that is that they said two things in their song. The first thing was glory to God in the highest heaven. And so I have to pause and ask myself the question, is God glorified now or is he only going to be glorified in the future? Is his glory a now thing or is his glory a future thing? And I have to say that his glory has been a now thing for as long as now has been now. The angels have cried out glory to God in the highest from as long as the angels have existed. And so if the glory of God exists now, then when they say peace on earth, they must also mean peace on earth is now. So how do we deal with the disconnect? 
Well, let's just dig deeper into it. Let me show you some things that Jesus himself said. Jesus, the one who was born on that night, that they said, peace on earth. Uh, Let's look at what he had to say later on in his life. About 30 years later, he would talk to his followers and he would tell them two amazing things. The first one from John chapter 14 says this, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. The angels said, don't be afraid. The baby was born. And the angels said, don't be afraid. And now that baby, the child of peace, is now saying to his followers, I'm giving you my peace. Now, that's not all that he said. Skip ahead a couple chapters in chapter 16. And Jesus says these words. He says, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you'll have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus says, yes, you're going to have trouble in this world, but despite your trouble, you can still have peace because Jesus has overcome the world. Do you realize Jesus said John chapter 16 before John chapter 20? And John chapter 16 happens before Jesus gets crucified. In other words, if you are familiar with the story of Jesus, he dies, he rises again. And in rising again, he demonstrates victory over the power of death, victory over the power of sin, victory over the powers of the world. And yet it was in chapter 16 that he said, past tense, I have overcome the world. It was in 16 that he said, present tense, I give you my peace. In 14, he said, present tense, I give you my peace. It's because of Jesus that we could say peace has already come. Peace isn't just some future thing. Peace isn't just something that I'm waiting for. Peace isn't just a pipe dream or a hope or an optimistic thought. Peace is now. But where? Where is it that I can find this peace? Where is it that I should look to see this peace? How do I experience this peace? Okay, you ready? Let me show you the verses we already looked at, but just stuck together. Put it up on the screen here again. It says, peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Three different peace. One, there's a peace that gets left with us. Two, there's a peace that gets given to us. Three, there's a peace that we experience when we are in Him. So guess what? You are the peace. You and I are the peace. When Jesus says, I'm leaving to go to my Heavenly Father and I'm leaving you here on the planet... Just so you know, I'm also leaving my peace with you. In other words, all of the peace of Jesus is still on the planet in your body and in my body. In my eyes, my hands, my feet, the peace of God has been given. Past tense to you and to me. Let me show you just a couple other verses that point this out. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 22, it says, But the, the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace. This is something God produces in us. Love and joy and peace. 
Let's skip over to Romans. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans. He says, the mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. Look around the room and you see people who are overflowing with peace. Whether or not they show it. Christians on this planet, those of us who follow Jesus, we are those who have been given peace. And you might ask, well, peace on earth, where is it? It's sitting right now in your chair. You are the peace on earth. We are the peace on earth. I am the peace on earth. Together, the peace that we have been hoping to see is already here. The question for us, though, is how? How does the peace get put here on the earth? How does Jesus have all the peace? Where does his peace come from? And how do I step into it? How do I walk into it? How do I become a person of peace? Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking at different ways for you to experience God's peace and ways for you to live out God's peace, ways for you to step into it and live it with the people around you, live it in this world that we're in, and live it in your relationship with God as well. And so we're going to be spending a few weeks talking about getting God's peace to flourish in our hearts because we are the peace on earth and we need to be the peace for the earth. And so we're going to talk about that. But the first thing we have to talk about is just the basic, basic, basic stuff. How did the peace get to me and what do I have to do to receive it? To do that, I'm going to take you through a bunch of Christmas passages. Christmas passages that aren't the Christmas passages that you've heard about, you know, the wise men and the shepherds. Uh, We already looked at the shepherds passage. We're going to look at that a little bit later on this month too. And and we're not going to look at some of those traditional Christmas passages. I'm going to take you to the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament book with more Christmas passages in it than any other Old Testament book. And we're going to spend a little time in Isaiah seeing some of the things that we have considered as Christmas passages that we need to see in a slightly new light to get an understanding of this peace process. We're going to start in Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah 7 verse 14 says this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. For before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the Lord, uh, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Now I'm going to leave that up there because we don't usually leave, uh, we don't usually pay attention to this end part of the verse. Right? You've heard the beginning part. Behold, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a child and you will call him Emmanuel. And you probably heard it from the book of Matthew, because in the book of Matthew, he translates Emmanuel. He says, which means God with us. We sing songs about Emmanuel, God with us. And we've read the passage in Matthew because Matthew believes this passage is talking to us about Jesus. And so Matthew says, the virgin who's going to conceive is Mary, and the baby who's going to be born is Jesus. And we call him God with us because he is literally God with us. And yes, Jesus is the second fulfillment of this passage, but he is not the first. 
You see, back in Isaiah's day, the king, Ahaz, was terrified of these other kings who were coming after him. Non-Jewish kings. Ahaz was terrified of the other kings that were amassing an army around him. And Isaiah went to Ahaz and he said, Ahaz, God is going to spare you from those kings. Ask God for a sign and he'll prove it. Ahaz says, I don't want to ask for a sign. And Isaiah says, okay, fine then. If you don't want to ask God for a sign, I'll just make one up. God told me to tell you this one. Okay, have this sign. A virgin will give birth to a child. Now, when Isaiah used the word virgin in the Hebrew language, that word means either an unmarried woman, a young woman, or it means a woman who's never been with a man. It doesn't mean a woman who is perpetually for the rest of her life never going to be with a man or ever having previously been with a man. And later on, in the book of Isaiah, we find out that it's Isaiah's own wife, that Isaiah has a child with his own wife, and that child is effectively the fulfillment of this passage. But there's two fulfillments to this passage. And the first fulfillment has two parts. The first part is before the child is old enough to know right from wrong, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. In other words, you're afraid of the enemy kings. But this child is going to be a symbol that God is with you to give you peace from those kings. Their land is going to be laid waste. You don't have to worry about those two kings that you're worried about. God is bringing peace. Oh, but something else is going to happen. Something else that you could never have thought of. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. In other words, unlike anything that your entire nation has ever known, he will bring, God will bring the king of Assyria. See, the first fulfillment of this prophecy has two little pieces. One piece is that God is going to give you peace. But the second piece is that God is going to bring you judgment. Read the rest of the chapter and you'll find that the king from Assyria is going to show up in Israel and he is going to ransack the country, demolish it completely, kill massive numbers of people. Assyria is going to be an agent from God to bring judgment on the people of Israel. In other words, the first time this prophecy shows up, Emmanuel, God with us, is going to give you peace and judgment. And Matthew says that the baby in the manger is this Emmanuel, the real fulfillment of this Emmanuel, somehow bringing both peace and and judgment. So then the question is, why? Why do we need God's judgment? Why is God going to move a little bit of peace, but also bring judgment? What is this duality? Doesn't God love us? Doesn't he want us to be always happy? Doesn't he want us to always experience peace? Why would God ever bring judgment on us? I thought God was loving. Well, let's take a look, because in Isaiah... And by the way, Isaiah is one of those prophets where he's got a lot that he wants to say, and he doesn't often say it all in the same order. And so in order to find out why the people are going to be judged, we have to skip all the way to Isaiah 59. In Isaiah 7, we learn they're going to be judged by the king of Assyria, but we have to skip all the way to 59 to learn learn about why they're going to be judged. And before I read this, 
I want to ask you to see these words and ask yourself the question, have I ever known a person or a group of people like what I am reading? Isaiah is going to give a list. In Isaiah 59, he's going to give us a list of the reasons why these people are under God's judgment. And our question is, have I ever met someone or have I ever learned a group of people who are like that? Take a look at it. God says, but your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood, your fingers with guilt, your lips have spoken falsely, and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice, no one pleads a case with integrity. Now I listen, I, I listen to these words and I'm like, okay, well, I'm not that bad, we're not that bad. It's not that no one is ever fighting for justice and no one ever pleads a case with integrity. And, and it, on the surface it gets a little bit worse. It says they rely on empty arguments, they utter lies, they conceive trouble and give birth to evil. Wait a minute, I've known some people who told lies and conceived of trouble and rely on arguments that don't really have any basis in fact or truth. Their feet rush into sin. They're swift to shed innocent blood. They pursue evil schemes. Acts of violence mark their ways. The way of peace they do not know. There is no justice in their paths. They've turned them into a crooked roads. No one who walks along them will know peace. So justice is far from us, and righteousness does not reach us. We look for light, but all is darkness. For brightness, but we walk in deep shadows. Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like people without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we're like the dead. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. Have you ever felt like you were in a circumstance where truth was nowhere to be found? And anyone who was trying to stand up for something became prey. The Lord looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene. So his own arm achieved salvation for him. And his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak according to what they've done so he will repay wrath to his enemies and retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. And then out of the blue he throws in this last sentence. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. You see, Isaiah 59 outlines the reason why God is going to judge his people. They have not pursued justice. They have not pursued truth. They have not pursued integrity. 
They have not pursued faithfulness with God. And as a result of their lack of faithfulness, lack of justice, lack of integrity, lack of honesty, God is done. And He is going to judge them with Himself. He is going to come and it says He's going to work salvation. And the salvation He's going to work is to kill all the people who are under judgment. He's going to come and just wipe them out. Except for that last little line that says, but a Redeemer will come. You get this picture in Isaiah 59 of a God who has every right to completely eradicate the human beings who claim to follow Him. He has the power and the authority to judge them. And yet, He says a Redeemer is going to come. Something is going to rise up to spare them, to buy them out of this trash heap they are in. Someone is going to come to offer them salvation and forgiveness. God is about to bring some wrath on the earth, and the Redeemer is going to come. This dual idea of the peace of God and the wrath of God centers on the person of a Redeemer. Now in the New Testament, in the New Testament, we know who it is. It's Jesus, a man who was born in Bethlehem, but spent most of his growing up years in a town in Galilee called Nazareth, a a Gentile town. And something we saw quoted in Matthew was about how Galilee of the Gentiles would become the place where a light would dawn. Isaiah said that first. Let me show it to you. In Isaiah chapter 9, it says, There will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, God humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the future, He will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders. This is about God bringing a rescue to them, bringing peace to them, bringing light to them. It says the rod of their oppressor, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Isaiah had made a promise that there was going to be an Emmanuel, a God with us baby. That baby would be born and he would usher in an era that experienced both real peace and real judgment. Judgment because God knows 
God knows that we have failed Him and we deserve all of His wrath and yet He loves us so much that He would provide a Redeemer. And so this child, when this child is born, He is going to bring light to the world and we will call Him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And He will reign on the throne of King David forever and ever. It never got fulfilled in Isaiah's day. But Jesus fulfilled every single one of those things. In fact, when Jesus was in his 30s, he once had an encounter with a government agent in the nation of Israel. And this is how that encounter goes. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You've said so, Jesus replied. You might see a little bit of snark in what Jesus says. You said it. You might see a little bit of um, pushback. I'm not the one who said it, but you said it. But the meaning behind what Jesus says there is revealed to us in more detail through the writings of the Apostle John. When John says this, So you are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I'm a king, and in fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they slapped him in the face. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. One of the interesting things about Jesus being the Prince of Peace is not that he's the person who experienced more peace than the rest of us. He experienced more torment than the rest of us. He experienced more pain than the rest of us. He experienced the anguish and the pain, of course, of the physical reality, but he also experienced the anguish and the pain of the abandonment of his followers, the the betrayal of one of those followers. He experienced the abandonment of all the people of Israel that he had only come to serve and love and help. But he also had a mission. And his mission involved the sacrifice of his own life for their salvation, for their forgiveness. The Redeemer is the one who receives the wrath so that others can be spared it. The Prince of Peace is the one who walks in peace while the world around him is crumbling down. So the world can collapse on him and the rest of us can have peace. We see the peace in his soul as he keeps his mouth shut before the soldiers mocking him. And we see the peace that comes from him as all of us experience the benefits of the fact that the world has punished him. The Lord, our our, our God in heaven, has punished him. The wrath of God has fallen on him and not on us. And Isaiah knew that would happen. In Isaiah 53, he said this, 
He, the Messiah, the chosen one, was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. You see, the peace that God provides for us happens as a result of the punishment that fell on him. Peace has come because Jesus has come. And everything that we might sing about or long for when it comes to Christmas is something that the truth of has already happened. I long for peace, but it's already happened because Jesus has taken the sin, the wrath of all that God can place on him, and he is infinite, and so he receives all of it, and we are left with peace. I want to finish this up by looking at a passage in Isaiah 57, where it's a passage I don't think I've ever really taught on a Sunday. It's a passage I don't think I've ever taught, definitely never taught on a Christmas. But it's a passage that helps us to take this home. What is it that I need to do in response to all that Jesus has done for me? What is it that I need to do to have the Prince of Peace enter into my life? What is it that I need to do to step into the peace that is available to me? Isaiah 57 says this, For this is what the High and Exalted One says, He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who's contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I will not accuse them forever, nor will I always be angry, for then they would faint away because of me, the very people I've created. I was enraged by their sinful greed. I punished them and I hid my face in anger, yet they kept on in their willful ways. I've seen their ways. But I will heal them. I will guide them and restore comfort to Israel's mourners, creating praise on their lips. Peace, peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. It boils down to this. God says at the beginning of that passage, I live in a high and holy place. I'm a God of righteousness. I'm a God of judgment. I'm a God of of holiness. And I've seen the stuff that you've done. And I've seen the people that you are. And I'm sick of it. 
and I just want to judge it. I just want to crush the people that I have made because I'm so fed up with all the injustice and unfaithfulness and dishonesty. I'm just fed up with it all. But I have a plan to heal them. And it begins with the recognition that God says, I live in a high and holy place, but also with those who are contrite and lowly. Let me give you three things to take home. Three things to use in your life to step into this peace that God has made available to us through Jesus. Number one, I want to ask you to embrace contrition and repentance. Contrition is the attitude that says, God, I am sorry that I have participated in this world, that I have perpetuated the problems in this world, that I have continued walking in all of the stuff of this world. I am so broken in my spirit that I have been a part of all of this. God, you are right to judge me, and I judge myself, but... Not just contrition. Contrition with repentance. Repentance is that act that turns from it. That act that says, I no longer want to walk in that path. I no longer want to follow that journey. No, the Redeemer has come for those in Jerusalem and those in Judah and those in the rest of the world who would repent. And Jesus has given his life for those of us who would repent and turn to him. That's why he started his ministry with the kingdom is here. Repent and believe it. So we are contrite and we repent and we come to God. And then, I want to ask you just to simply believe in the accomplished, finished, totally done work of Jesus. There isn't anything left that you need to do to earn your favor with God. There isn't anything left that you need to do to become a person that God loves. God loves you through Jesus, the finished work on the cross. Your sins can be wiped clean. When you come forward today and you receive communion, I want you in your heart to say, God, I believe that Jesus has done all that needed to be done. And then number three, the last thing is to receive it. And notice I'm not saying receive the gift of salvation. It's the job of pastors all the time to tell people how to be saved. You, you need to be saved. You need to pray and receive Christ and give your heart to Him. The problem is that salvation is not the only benefit that we are ever told in Scripture comes from receiving Jesus. In fact, receiving Jesus through all of the passages in, in Isaiah, receiving Jesus through all of the things that we've seen also in the New Testament, receiving Jesus results in salvation because it results in peace between me and God. Now no longer does God have to shine his wrath down on me. Now because of Jesus I can be at peace with God. And so receive his gift of peace. There's nothing we can do to convince God that we're good enough because we've already failed there. But we can embrace contrition and repentance. We can believe in the finished and complete work of Jesus and we can receive his gift of peace. And then from this day forward, we can be people who walk in peace, a peace in our soul, a peace with others, a peace for others, a peace with God that is unmatched by anything else. This morning, we're going to spend some time in quiet 
reflecting on these thoughts. Maybe for you, you want to spend a few moments in prayer and just say, God, would you speak into my heart? I dedicate my life to you all over again. And then we're going to come forward and we're going to receive communion. Jesus gave his body and his blood, and we symbolize it through the bread and the grape juice. And we receive his body and his blood into us spiritually as we receive the bread and the grape juice, the cracker and the grape juice into our bodies physically. And we say, Jesus, I believe and I receive. So we come to God in contrition and repentance. We believe his finished work. We receive the gift of peace. And I invite you to come forward as you're ready today. Let me pray for you. Thanks for listening to this message from Lafayette Community Church. We are all about helping you live the life you were made to live. God made you. God loves you. And his plans for you are perfect. So if you are anywhere near Lafayette, Indiana, join us this weekend at one of our worship gatherings. And wherever you are, check us out online at lafayettecommunitychurch.com.